Well, good morning again. We're in First Thessalonians. We're going to pick up where we left off in chapter 4 with verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, so that the uh, clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, let's pray that God would teach us by his word this morning. Father, we thank you that you haven't left us to our own devices. That you haven't left us to figure it all out for ourselves. But instead, you've given us your word through your prophets, through the apostles, that we might know you. That we might not, might not be lost in our lives, but find in Jesus all that we need. So teach us this morning, we pray. Amen. Well, some of y'all know uh, my grandfather passed away in February. Uh, he was 89. Would have been 90 this month, actually. Um, my grandfather, you know, most of my life I would have, he went to church, uh, but I wouldn't have necessarily said had a particularly strong faith. But the strangest thing is his faith did continue to grow over the years. So there was something of a strange irony that though his heart grew weaker physically, it was growing larger spiritually. Uh, he became a deacon in his late 70s, which is very odd. Uh, that even when he was retired twice, <laughs> he didn't see retirement as a time of entitlement, but as more time to serve others. And the weirdest thing was that at his funeral, the church was packed, as, well, as packed as it could be <laughs> under uh, COVID protocols, but, uh, which is strange for somebody who's nearly 90. I don't know if you've been to many funerals or not. Uh, some of you probably have not. Some of you probably have been to more than you care to have been to. But when folks are 90, it tends to be a thinner and thinner crowd for obvious reasons, but, uh, but because he had reinvested over the years in serving others, most of the congregation came out because they knew him, because he had helped them in some way. Uh, folks from his neighborhood, folks that he had known over the years working, uh, it was a large affair, and it was full of hope because what was obvious was that God was working in his life but what was most important, and the thing that he would have wanted said over and over again, was that there was hope not in how good he was, 
but in how good Jesus is. In fact, he would have been, <laughs> he would have been mortified at the whole affair. He would never have sat through a, uh, a service where people talked about him uh, much at all. But, he, but the point, of course, wasn't that he was so good, but that God was good. It was at work in his life along the way, slowly but steadily, and more importantly, at that moment, that our hope was that he would rise again. This is what Paul is getting at. You see, Paul has been working through this, uh, this letter to the Thessalonians, a church that he helped start in Thessalonica, but had to leave town pretty quickly uh, as trouble started. And we've, if you've been following along, you know, he's sent back Timothy to help encourage this church. And he's writing this letter in a variety of ways to encourage them, but uh, in chapters four and five to address a few areas where he felt like he needed to continue to unpack some of the things they needed to learn. And uh, last week when we talked about sexual ethics, we talked about uh, the questions of brotherly love and how you care for one another as the church. And here he gets to what is, you know, one of the most basic questions, death. <laughs> kind of a tough subject. But it is, of course, the most unavoidable human topic. We try to avoid it in the modern world, but what everyone has always known is that this is an unavoidable question. It is for all of us. But what Paul holds out is a hope that we are being changed and that even death doesn't foil that hope. So we'll unpack first how we're changed by that hope, what the effects of that hope are. And then second, we'll see the past reason for our hope and third, we'll see the future reason for our hope. So he's going to talk about the change that hope brings, and then he will tell us the reasons. Reasons that could take us backward in time and reasons that take us forward in time. So first, the change that that hope brings. And it's, it's obvious. It's verses 13 and verses 18. Paul ends this whole thing saying, encourage one another. Encourage is this verse, is this verb that keeps coming up all throughout 1 Thessalonians. Encourage one another. Uh, the Greek verb is parakaleo. It most literalistically means calling out alongside somebody. Like you're in a race, right? And you're, and you're you know, telling each other, keep going, keep going, right? You've all been watching the Olympics probably, right? This is, this is what it means to cheer people on, right? This is what we do at a sporting event is cheer them on as they're going. That is the whole idea. This is a verb that keeps popping up. It's going to continue to pop up, I'm going to tell you this, in the, over the last few sermons in this book. It continues to come up. But here's the thing. All this stuff about death and resurrection and the end time stuff we're going to talk about, all of this, the whole point, the takeaway from it is to encourage one another. And one of those ways, and one of those important ways in which we're supposed to encourage one another is in how we grieve. It's how he gets into this in verse 13, isn't it? He doesn't want us to be uninformed 
about those who fall asleep. Asleep is, of course, you probably recognized, a, uh, a polite way of talking about someone who's died. He's talking about those who have died, and he doesn't want us to grieve as those without hope. Those without hope. That's a curious way of putting it, but an apt one. Certainly in the ancient world, uh, the afterlife was not thought of as being particularly good. Uh, There were a variety of different takes on this, but by and large, even the ones where it wasn't some sort of punishment involved, it was seen as some shadowy existence. Just a shade of what you once were. If you've ever read the works of Homer uh, or, uh, or Virgil, you, you will recognize this when some of the heroes go to the underworld. That's what they see as people who are just a shadow of what they once were. And no one, and I mean no one, thought resurrection was going to happen. Except, of course, the Jews who were reading the Old Testament, who were expecting it but saw it as a thing that happened at the very end of time. And this is why Paul says that we have hope. Not that we will somehow, mysteriously maybe, be connected with those beyond at some point when we pass over. No, our hope is the resurrection, that we will be raised back to life whole. This is important because, again, we'll talk a little bit, we'll unpack more about that resurrection hope in a second, but this stands in stark relief to the pagan world of the past and to the modern world of the present. There's, a, there's an, one of the earliest uh, church historians, a guy named Bede, B-E-D-E, he's often called the Venerable Bede, um, wrote about the conversion of England and the, the first missionaries to to England. He tells a story that dates back to around the year 625. A guy named Paulinus went to the court of King Edwin in Northumberland, which is right along the Scottish border. And uh, he preaches there, you know, shares the gospel. And then the king took counsel with his advisors and some of the pagan priests. And one of them said, started to use this analogy, said, our life is like a sparrow. That flies, this is a, the sparrow that flies swiftly through one door of the hall, meaning their banqueting hall in the winter, and out through another. While he's inside, he is safe from the winter storms, but after a moment of comfort, he vanishes from sight into the wintry world from which he came. Even so, man appears on earth for a little while, but of what went before or what follows, we know nothing. Again, this is a pagan priest. Therefore, if this new teaching has brought any more certainty of knowledge, it seems only right that we should follow it. That is what changes, right? Is a knowledge of what lies beyond. That we are not left with the kind of guesswork that the ancient world had and that we often in the modern world practice. And so that's the encouragement, right? We're not without hope. So we ought to encourage each other to press on. 
Which means that the fellowship that Paul uh, imagines for the church, and I hope this is becoming clearer as we go through Thessalonians, is not merely kind of chatting over coffee and talking about the thing, you know, just the general things we're interested in. You know, it'll be football season again. And, you know, that, that'll be another topic. Uh, maybe we are talking about the weather in August. We're always complaining about the weather in Charleston, right? It's the, those sorts of things. That is not what Paul has in mind. It's also more than just accountability. I don't know when, you, when you're in high school or when you're in college, accountability or groups are always a thing that people push on you. And they can be fine, but they're often morbidly focused on sin. As if that's the only thing. And they miss exactly what Paul's talking about, which is encouragement. Encouragement in who we are in Jesus. You see, that bigger category of encouragement, it has room for us to be friends and talk about just the things, you know, the little things we're interested in. It has room, of course, certainly has room for accountability, but it is much bigger. It is about us intentionally reminding each other of who we are in Jesus. That as we're going along, we are cheering each other on, building each other up, reminding us of what is true about who we are. And of course, the place where this is maybe most salient is when we walk alongside those who are have suffered a loss. And boy, we feel ill-equipped for that, don't we? Uh, we we're tempted towards cheap answers, shortcuts, right? There, our natural tendency often enough is to just try to give people space, which means we just back off and they're left alone. Sometimes we try to give simplistic answers or quick fixes instead of listening. You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) The simple answers we give because that helps us feel better. Or we are asking them to sort of, we give them answers to dissolve their strong emotions so that it's less awkward for us. Sometimes we quote scripture at people. And rather than encouraging them in the truth, we use that to bypass dealing with what is difficult. Oftentimes we say things that aren't even really true. Truth be told, sometimes they're heresies. We want people to be done with it quickly. But that is not the way of grief. And don't miss this. Don't miss this. Paul is not telling us to avoid grief. He's telling us we should mourn, but mourn with hope. He's not saying, and look, this is, again, in our modern, our modern temptation, right, when we face something difficult, is either on the one hand to avoid it, I'm just not going to think about that. I'm going to bear myself in work or these other tasks or all these other, you know, all these other things so that I don't have to think about what is going on here. Or to indulge ourselves in outrage. So we point the blame somewhere else. This is why we take something like a pandemic 
And it's so convenient to treat it as a political issue. Because politics lets us, on the one hand, avoid, and I'm talking about both sides here, avoid the human cost. That 630,000 people in America have died from this. We don't have to mourn. We can avoid it by talking, talking about it as if it's a policy issue. And on the other hand, it also allows us to be outraged at those, that other side. Instead of what we ought to do, which is mourn. But mourn with hope. We're fi- the, the Bible has some amazing reminders about this, right? Psalm 116 tells us that the death of his saints is precious in the sight of the Lord. At the end of the Bible, in Revelation 14, we are told that blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. And get this, the Spirit answers, blessed indeed that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. What is being celebrated is not their death, but the hope that gives their death meaning that doesn't make it meaningless. We are called to have hope even in the midst of mourning. And that is why the biblical genre for mourning, the way we're taught to express our mourning is lament. The Psalms are full of lament Psalms. Probably, for my money, the, I think the clearest example of this is Psalm 13, because it's really divided neatly in half. Half of it is about how bad the situation is, and the other half is about how good God is, and it is about holding those two things together and holding on. That's what it looks like to mourn, is to be honest both about the evil of this world the tragedy we have wrought that is the wages of our sin, but also the goodness of God in the midst of it. And of course, all of this is to say, and what Paul is saying so clearly, don't miss this, is that our loss is not the last word. It isn't. So this is the first of the reasons why we have hope. So that's the change, right? The change is that it teaches, we're taught to, be, to encourage one another to grieve with hope, not without it. And the reason, first, is because of what Jesus has already done. Notice this in verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, right, the historical facts of the matter... Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. That even so is doing a lot of work. What Paul is is doing here is reminding us that those who trust in Jesus have been united with Jesus, inseparable with Jesus. This is a concept that maybe is not always obvious to us, But once you start to listen to Paul talking about being in Christ or through Christ or by Christ, all these things happen, it starts to become crystal clear that over and over and over again, the assumption in the New Testament is that when you you trust in Christ, you are united to him. So that what is true about him 
is true about you. Of what he has done is true about you. I mean, think just for <laughs> a really obvious illustration in Romans 6, he said, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, as to say, if we died with him, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. See, it's taking the historical truth of what Jesus accomplished, right? His death and resurrection, which are the guarantee of our hope. And don't miss the resurrection piece. Christians, and especially Protestants, and especially especially evangelicals, talk about the cross a lot, and rightly so. We did a whole series on Mark recently, spent a long time thinking about the crucifixion and everything leading up to it. Rightly so, right? Of course, that is the death that's in our place. It is the judgment of our sin. It is all of those things. But the resurrection is often treated as if it's just kind of the capstone miracle, like the, better, the best miracle of all that just kind of happens to come. No, it is actually the undoing of the wages of sin. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 will say, if he has not been raised, we are without hope. Because the, the finishing of the work of paying for our sins is the breaking of the power of death. The cross and the resurrection go together in the undoing of sin and evil. That's the historical truth. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is, then, if we are united with Jesus, then that means that our resurrection is guaranteed. That spiritual reality that's at work in us is guaranteed. You know, we died first spiritually and then physically, and so too, after the resurrection, we are being raised first spiritually and then physically. And that is guaranteed because we are united to Jesus. So that if he has been raised from the dead, you will be raised from the dead if you are in him. Full stop, no qualifications. If you are in Jesus, you will be raised from the dead. And that spiritual resurrection that's already at work will be brought to completion. It will be. If you are in Jesus, it will be finished. Now, this union thing is, is kind of a bit mysterious. It's hard for us to get our heads around because we're pretty hyper-individualistic in the modern Western world. Though we still have some concept of this, right? We have some concept of you know, representative government, for example, right? Where what our officials do is what we do as a country, right? Um, we say this about our team sports. We won. I didn't win. I mean, I didn't do anything, right? I cheered them on, but we won. Right? You say this about your college team. You say this about uh, your city when they are recognized in different ways. We say this in the Olympics. We won. The USA won. I mean, I, I didn't do any vaults. I, think I, I, didn't do, I didn't do any of that. It would not be pretty. Uh, but the but we won. <laughs> we all won. We say we think this about our families too, right? The pride, or perhaps the shame, that we feel about what's happened, because others represent our whole family. 
And this is the way God works, right? We are first in Adam. And everything that's true about what Adam did is true about us. Which is the bad news, to be clear. But no wonder that Paul, at least in a couple other places, talks about Jesus as the new Adam or the second Adam, right? Because it is also true now that if you are in Jesus, what he has done is true about you. So that if he has died and been raised, so have you. Sinclair Ferguson, who's a um, theologian I like, he writes a lot of books. He does, it, there's this interesting illustration he uses in, in one of his books where he talks about two Puritan guys, one named William Perkins and another named John Bunyan. And John Bunyan, you might know, wrote Pilgrim's Progress. But both of these guys produced... Um, a single-page kind of illustration that you could print and give out, and especially in the 17th century when in England the literacy rate was something like 30%. A chart is a very helpful tool for helping people learn about, basically about how salvation is accomplished. And he, he, he's talking about how they, you know, they, they both have these different illustrations they made, but he says, he says this, he says, the same elements are present in each chart, as they trace salvation from eternity, past, to eternity, future. There is, however, one major striking difference. In Perkins' chart, every aspect of the application of salvation is tied to a central spine representing Christ in terms of the work he has accomplished. What, what's, what I think sometimes happens, and this is a subtle point but a very important point, is that we think that Jesus has accomplished something, and so God is free to give us good things. So he, you know, he's called us, and then he's free to justify us, and then he's free to sanctify us, and he's free to glorify us. But it all feels contingent. Like at any moment, he might just sort of stop. But if we understand that those things are actually only the work of Jesus being worked out in our lives because we are united to him, then they are guaranteed. They will not fail. You are being justified because you have been buried with Christ and raised with him. You are being sanctified because you've been buried with Christ and raised with him. You will be glorified because you've been buried with Christ and raised with him. Do you get the point? We tend to think the benefits of Christ are somehow sort of separated off from what he accomplished, but what Paul is reminding us here is that they are intimately tied to the very acts of his death and resurrection, and they can never be pulled apart from it. So we have hope because Jesus has been raised from the dead, which means our hope will never fail. That means it's inevitable. If you are in Christ, you will be raised. Again, it is happening now spiritually, and it will be brought to fruition physically one day. And look, this is done powerfully by the Holy Spirit, the one, you know, who brought everything out of nothing, who hovered over the waters at creation, who brought Jesus back from the dead, 
you may not feel like God is working in your life. Indeed, if you don't trust in Jesus, then I would say you need to deal with that. But if you do trust in Jesus, if you believe in him and his death and his resurrection on your behalf, whether you feel it or not, this is important to understand, you are being raised. And you will be raised finally, fully, in the last day. And all of this ought to give us then courage and comfort. Courage to face what we need to face. To strengthen one another. That even in the midst of difficulty, even, even in the midst of our struggles, to know that God is at work. No matter what. And it should give us comfort that in those struggles and in our grief, he is at work. We do not need to fear. There's a second reason, too. It is looking, we have reason for hope because we look back at what Jesus already accomplished, and we look forward to what he will Of course, that is the outgrowth of what he already accomplished. But Paul outlines a bit of a sequence in verses 15 to 17 for us. I don't know if you notice this. He says, uh, I received, you know, we gave gave to you this word of the Lord. Now, perhaps this is partly something Paul received when he was out in the desert and God showed him visions. We know about this from elsewhere. But it's also clearly this passage clearly alludes back to Matthew 24. Uh, Matthew 24 is this long, one of the long teaching sections in Matthew. Uh, it begins with Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple, but it quickly becomes this apocalyptic passage about the end of time. We, we covered uh, the slightly shorter version of it in Mark when we did our series in Mark. It's Mark 13. Did that several months back. Uh, but Matthew 24 is a bit of a longer one. And uh, a bunch of these pieces are there. The trumpet call, which shows up in a lot of the stuff about the end of time throughout the Old Testament, uh, but it's there. And also, the cloud descending. Jesus talks about that as him, as the Son of Man, descending on the cloud. This, is, this goes back even as an echo back to Daniel 7, which is another passage, but... Jesus is talking about the end of time, and he's talking about the trumpet sound. He's talking about the cloud descending, and the cloud being the, you know, the symbol of his glory. That throughout the Old Testament, you have the bright, shining, unchangeable light of God that he wraps in cloud and smoke so that it won't destroy us to see it. But those who enter it, like Moses, are radiating that glory for a time after they walk out. And so this is the very presence of God. Jesus is talking about riding down as the presence of God. And this is important. The directional piece is important here because there have been ways in which this passage has sometimes been misinterpreted. Paul doesn't mention down here, but because he expects us to be thinking about Matthew 24. He expects us to recognize the image. This is about the Lord returning as the conquering king 
to the world. And so he is descending on the glory of God. And so those who are caught up in it, and this is partly where maybe there's a piece from Paul's revelation that he received, but the, the idea of people being caught up in the air is not so that they lift off and go somewhere else, but instead it's the image of a king riding in to the city after his victory to claim his throne. You know, this is what they did in the ancient world. When a king had won a victory, the people went out of the city to line the road to celebrate his entrance, right? And then they would fall in behind in his train as part of the parade celebrating the victory. That is the image we get, right? Is that the dead rise and are caught up into the train of the risen Savior who's returning. And so too, if we are left still alive at that time, as Paul was not, neither were any of his readers, but if we are, we will be caught up with them, right? To enter in to a new heavens and a new earth that his glory will transform. This is important because it tells us that we're not simply hoping of the past, we're looking at something that will change in the future. But notice this, that this takeaway from all that future sequence is still the same, right? Encourage one another. Grieve as those with hope. Because the, the whole of the Old Testament, we'll see, or the whole of the New Testament, and we'll see, we see it a little bit here, we'll see it more in next week's passage in chapter 5, is teaching us to see the world now, after the resurrection, as living in between the time. Some theologians have called it the overlap of the ages, right? Where the old sinful order has had its death blow, but it is still alive. But a new order, the kingdom of God, has begun with power at Jesus' resurrection. And so now we live in a time where the dominion of darkness and the kingdom of light overlap. And this is important because this is all of New Testament ethics. In that overlap in which we live is the decisive moment for action, for change. It is the great struggle. One of the most interesting recent novels I've read is called Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. I think I've probably quoted it from before. Uh, but there's a, a minister who is kind of writing these letters which make up the bulk of the novel. Uh, and, and at one point he says, I cannot believe that when we have all changed, been changed and put on incorruptibility, in other words, been resurrected, that we will forget our fantastic condition of mortality and impermanence the great bright dream of procreating and perishing that meant the whole world to us. In eternity, this world will be Troy, and all that has passed here will be the epic of the universe, the ballad they sing in the streets. I think we can actually put a bit of a finer point on that, <laughs> to say that what Jesus has done and the way that it works out in all of our lives will be the things that we celebrate for eternity. This is the moment. Which is why as a church, we shouldn't be nostalgic. A lot of churches get nostalgic. A lot of Christians get nostalgic for some bygone era in which we imagine things were better. And don't get me wrong, there may be certain aspects of things that were better in the past. I'm, I'm not trying to get in a debate about that. But it misses the point 
that whatever your bygone era was, it was still in the overlap of the ages. And you were put here in this moment to do what God has called you to do. And we are so tempted often to live in the past. You know, again, the church can kind of mythologize a past, but even individually, right, we can be stuck in our own past. And I'm not saying the past, we don't have to reckon with the past. In biblical language, reckoning with the past is forgiveness and repentance. You may, we may need to do that. Again, as a church, you may need to do that individually. But we cannot undo what has been done. Our moment to make a decision is today. Is now. Well, as Gandalf said, all we have to decide is what to do with the time we've been given. And let's not be a church then that's always wishing we were at some other place, maybe in American history, maybe wishing we were back in 17th century England. Only a Presbyterian would say that. Uh, But we are here, and this is what God has given us. And it is our time to be faithful to him in this 2021 in Charleston. That's what we're called to be. And that, you see, that future hope, which is sometimes maligned as if it's a distraction from ethics, actually gives us reason to have hope, to actually love our neighbors and even love our enemies. It is the power of Jesus' death and resurrection that gives us hope. And no one is beyond the power of God. No one is ultimately without the possibility of hope. And even when the way in which we care for others seems fruitless, it is still not fruitless because in it we learn to love others the way Jesus loves. Which is reward enough. It means we should be stewards of God's world. To care about, you know, his creation, which he will renew. To care about the, our society. Not because we imagine that God's just going to simply bless it all. And say, oh yeah, that was great. You know, who knows? I know people that sometimes speculate about these kinds of things. I don't really know, but I do know that he comes to renew all things. That's what he promises at the beginning of Revelation 21. And so what we do to care for his world and to care for others in it is not pointless. Rather, it gives us a perspective that the world will be made right. And that is guaranteed by Jesus' resurrection. But notice this final piece at the very end of verse 17. And so we will always be with the Lord. Do you notice that? We'll always be with the Lord. That is our final hope. That is why we will be raised. So that we can be with him, body and soul. So we can have a whole existence enjoying God. The language of earlier Christians was, in the, was the beatific vision. That we would see God 
that we would see him face to face. After all, Jesus says in Matthew 5, right? Blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see God. It is our hope that we will be with him and enjoy him. And notice that, that is God with us in a different sense than when Jesus first came. When Jesus first came, he came in humility to take on our flesh, to endure what it is we deserved. But when he comes again to be with us again, it will be to raise us up to glory. To raise us up out of death, to enjoy him face to face. That's the, real, <laughs> that's the real joy of it. And of course, that is in Christ too, because it is Jesus who is God and man that we see face to face. That's how we will see God, is in the face of our Savior, who we were united with, that we died with, and have been raised with. There's lots of cool things about what the new heavens and the new earth might be. I mean, imagine having the time to actually do all the things you wanted to do. That'd be kind of cool. Uh, it would be cool to navigate life without worrying about disease and death and loss. All those things will be wonderful. But the best thing, the most important thing, the most beautiful thing, the most powerful thing is to bask in the presence of the Lord. To know him for who he is, the one who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. To see Jesus is our hope. And that is why we encourage one another. That is why we do not grieve as those without hope. Because we will see Jesus face to face, whole, body and soul, to enjoy him, to be lost in wonder, love, and praise forever. Amen. Father, we thank you that our hope is not in ourselves. It is not in our accomplishments. It is not in our goodness, but it is in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And because we have been united to Christ, because he died, because he rose from the dead, it will never be disappointed. So give us comfort. Give us encouragement. Teach us to encourage others. And as we grieve sin and its consequences now teach us to grieve as those with hope that our loss is not the last word and even as we come to this meal teach us to taste and see that you are good and that Jesus' death and resurrection are the last word we need to hold us fast we ask this in Jesus' name Amen.